Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. Y yes, you're anticipating it. I respect this right here. Right here. You guys know what's coming. My name's Brett. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, I don't even have to say a word. The spirit just moves in this place. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Matthew 7 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, um, we thank you that you um, teach us. May we not just hear your words, may we not just watch your life and see the example that you have blazed in front of us, O pioneer of our salvation, may we put into practice your words, may we follow you on the path of salvation, may this be something that um, gets into us, may um, by your spirit grace us and may we be wise and not foolish. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. He is risen. He is risen. Yes! 
BS! That's why we're here! No joke! That's like a really big deal. Jesus, he didn't just come back from the dead, he burst through death, he broke through it. Out the other side, there's a path now. There's a path through death, um, and it leads to um, life. Um, it's really good news, and um, yeah, I'm glad you guys know he's risen indeed. It's the day after Easter. I was hoping you guys would remember that, or the week after Easter. I'm glad you guys remember that. Um, we're starting a new series, The Kingdom is Like, is what we're beginning uh, this week, it'll take us six or seven weeks um, through uh, the season of Eastertide is actually the season that we're in in the church calendar. The kingdom, after all, is, um, is the gospel, according to Jesus. That's what Jesus went around proclaiming, the kingdom. Um, that's Jesus' gospel. Um, not, it's, he didn't go around proclaiming. Uh, I grew up in church, and so a lot of times I heard the gospel, I put in scare quotes for a second, um, but Jesus was proclaiming something different than I heard a lot of times growing up in church. He wasn't proclaiming that you can go somewhere else um, with good AC <laughs> when you die, otherwise you'll go somewhere else with bad AC <laughs> when you die. That, I mean, that has ramifications, but like, that's not the central, follow Jesus around. That's not the thing that he's going around proclaiming. He's, he's proclaiming something new is arriving here and now, not, not sometime in the future. Um, it's, the kingdom is a phrase that sounds uh, a little churchy, doesn't it? If we got honest for a second, sounds a little churchy, sounds a little Bible-y, don't quite know what it means. The kingdom, uh, we just read it this morning in verse 1 of Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? Let's talk about that for a second. In fact, let's just start with something really basic. What does the kingdom mean? Kingdom, because we don't that's a good place to start because we don't really do kingdoms here, do we? In America, nah, we, we threw some tea in a harbor. We got rid of kings. Like, we're, we don't do kings here in America. And so most of what we know about kingdoms, there are still kingdoms in the world, by the way. You know that, right? There's like absolute monarchies still exist, like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or the kingdom of Swaziland. Anyone been to Swaziland? The king, it's a kingdom. It's an absolute monarchy. But most of the kingdoms that we're familiar with, most of what we know about kingdoms, we know from Disney movies, right? Most of what I learned about kingdoms, I learned from Frozen. Um, and and, and the, let's get honest, I mean, we, could, we could all say that. Uh, but let's run with that for just a second, because that actually, that actually lets us know what a kingdom is. That, that communicates enough to us. Um, the reign of Queen Elsa in Frozen, she is reigning over the kingdom of Arendelle. And that is, show of hands really quickly, I'm not speaking Greek to anybody. Everybody's seen Frozen, right? It's a masterpiece of Disney. It's like it's a modern, it's really good. Um, the kingdom of Arendelle is the sphere of influence that is under the reign of Queen Elsa. It is the region, it is the area where things are as Elsa wants them to be. They reflect Elsa. And so when Elsa's struggling, it's like the kingdom is struggling. The kingdom gets 
frozen. Um, but then at the end of the movie, when Elsa's like sorted things out, you know, she's kind of sorted things out, the kingdom becomes like warm and green and prosperous. The realm flourishes because that is what the queen wants. We could say uh, this way, uh, a kingdom is the place where the realm lines up with the ruler. If you want a way to think about kingdom that's not churchy or bible or to And to help us understand what Jesus is talking about. Almost every translation of the Bible um, translates hey Basileia ton aronon, um, the, the king, as the kingdom of heaven right here. Um, that's what they, even though there might be like ways of translating it that would like wake us up a little bit more. I mean, we could say the dominion of heaven. We could say the, the ruling authority of heaven. We could say the governance of heaven. All of those things might land a little bit more with us, right? Um, when we hear that, the governance of heaven, oh, we're, like, we're like, oh, what's, what's he talking about there? Wait, what? The, the governance of God. The world being ordered in the way that God designed. Life being arranged in the way that God intends for it to be. Things being as God wants them to be. We could say it this way. Um, the kingdom of heaven is when earth lines up with heaven. If you want to know what Jesus is talking about here. That's what Jesus is announcing. That's the gospel according to Jesus. He's saying, it's possible, it's coming, it's arriving. Earth and heaven are starting to line up. And if that's the gospel according to Jesus, well, what is the kingdom like? Tell me more about that. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this series. So the next six or seven weeks, that's what we're going to be reflecting on, particularly in the book of uh, Matthew. Um, the, we could say it this way. This is what the series is about. What does it look like to live under the rule and reign of heaven? That's the question. We're listening to Jesus very carefully to like, find out what that looks like. And we're actually, uh, this week, we're beginning kind of at the end of Matthew. Uh, we're, uh, what we heard read just a minute ago um, it's a moment in Matthew near the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is describing for us what the reign of heaven will look like at a particular time. Um, verse 1 actually begins, um, it's a tiny little word in Greek, four letters. It's tote is what it is in Greek. Then, then, at that time, tote, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like, is what he's pointing uh, towards. And he says it's going to be like Deca Parthenoi, ten maidens, ten virgins, ten unmarried women. Anyone? Parthenoi. Anyone heard of the, um, the great temple of, um, of Athena called the, the Parthenon? It's the, the, same, the same word right there. Deca, ten, Parthenoi, ten virgins. Our, our, modern, our modern culture tends to like deride virginity a little bit, like ah, kind of make fun of it just a little bit. Um, but uh, Parthenoi, they were like significant symbols of purity in most of human culture, in most of human history. So much so that like ancient cultures worldwide have like sacrificed them to the gods, <laughs> you know, what I mean? throwing virgins in volcanoes. You guys have, I don't, 
I was doing research this week to find out if that ever happened, and apparently, like, there's, like, it's a question mark. It's a Hollywood myth, but, like, there, it seems like it might have happened, throwing the... No one else... You guys are kind of... Like, it is kind of macabre, I guess. I, but but was, it's an interesting image, throwing the... Anyway, um, we have two groups of Parthenoi in this um, parable that Jesus is telling. It's, um, it's one big group of purity but then it gets divided, subdivided into two smaller groups, both of purity, by the way. That's really important in this parable. Five wise and five foolish. Five are phronimos. They are like thoughtful, sensible, um, mindful. Is, and five are moros. They're, they're morons. That's the, it's, the, it's the word, right? It's where we get the word. Um, at its heart, you can throw that slide up. Um, this parable, at its most basic, is about one big group of purity, symbolic, beautiful purity getting separated in this parable. That's, you guys follow, right? That's what's happening, is it's getting separated. And what separates these two groups of purity. It's significant. What separates? What makes all the difference? It's a story about them all coming to a wedding. They're all anticipating it. Evidently, all of them are bridesmaids. The bride never shows up herself. Um, None of us are the bride in and of ourselves, maybe. Um, They're waiting to meet the groom, waiting for like a great feast, a great celebration in the ancient world, um, and dependent on local customs that scholars debate about. Um, After nightfall, frequently, a groom would escort his bride in a caravan from her father's house through whatever kind of traveling it takes to, um, to his house. So you're moving from the father's house to you're being brought to the groom's house. And um, it would frequently happen after nightfall, after a feast, and then it would travel, and then there'd be more feasting. Um, and so you need two things at nightfall for safety and protection. You need a caravan... You need a whole lot of people in the ancient world. You don't want to like fall under the hand of robbers or something. And you also need lamps or torches. Some kind of light is what you need. And once you get to the groom's house for celebration and feasting, it's nighttime. Do you open the door for strangers in the darkness? No. No, you, you don't. Well, I mean... We don't even like opening our doors in the modern world with all our modern conveniences of like electric light and security cameras that are like on our like doorbells and like on-demand police service. Just dial 911 and they will be there. Like imagining opening your door to strangers in the darkness in the ancient world. It didn't happen. You don't do it. Um... What separates these two groups of people in this parable? What separates the celebrants from the strangers is how they have prepared. It's how they prepared. You've heard people say before, talking heads on the news perhaps, say, it's all about the oil. 
It's all about the oil, you know, in some sort of context, wars or whatever. Well, it happens to be true here in this parable. It's all about the oil. It's all, that's, that's what's central in this parable. It all comes down to um, Elion. Elion is the, um, the Greek. It all comes down to oil. One group, verses 3 and 4, one group has prepared. They're like loaded down with Elion. Plenty of Elion, plenty of oil. And the other group is no Elion. They are oil-less. And so when the decisive moment comes, when the groom and his caravan finally arrive, one group of purity joins him for like a party, for celebration, because they have Elion. And then the other group is left in the dark because they don't have a lion. Jesus says, that's what the reign of heaven looks like. Tote, verse 1. Then, at some time, that's what the kingdom looks like. That's what the rule is. So, let's answer two questions, and then we'll come to the table, and then we're going to go celebrate baptism. Um, first, when the heck is he talking about? That seems really important. Verse 1 seems really important. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... So we need to answer the question, when? And that's going to take us like six or seven minutes. And then we'll just have a couple of minutes to reflect on what in the world does this mean for us? Um, Sound like a plan? We'll come to the table and celebrate baptism. Both of those are tricky questions. Just a tiny bit tricky. um, Because there's a lot of disagreement here about this parable. And... um, and when Jesus exactly means. If you want to know when Jesus means, you actually have to flip. I know this is surprising, but you have to read the Bible. Uh, (laughs) To understand Matthew 25, you have to uh, actually look at Matthew 24, um, because Jesus has been answering the question of when in Matthew chapter 24. And we need to pay attention to what Jesus is talking about. Um, Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, uh, 24 verse uh, 1, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem just before Passover, just before Holy Week. We just celebrated it. Um, he's been teaching in the temple. It's like, a mo- it's like an ancient uh, marvel. It is a, a, a wonder of the world that Herod has created. He's renovated the Jewish temple. People come from, like, it is a place where sightseers come. And, the t- and he is telling, uh, verses 1 and 2, he's telling his disciples that this great building, this modern marvel of architecture, is going to be completely destroyed. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with, uh, when his disciples came up to him to call attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked them. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Yikes. <laughs> and so they ask him, like, the obvious question. As, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is the next verse, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Um, they're following Jesus, the disciples are. And they're thinking that he's the, like, foretold king of Israel, that he's going to kick butt, take names, and establish God's kingdom. They're all looking for God's kingdom. They have all kinds of ideas about what it's going to be like. It's going to involve kicking Roman butt, getting them out of the land. Um, And they hear this. Oh, my gosh. This is a juicy detail. The temple's going to be destroyed. When? 
Oh, do tell. What's it going to look like when this present evil age finally ends and the new age, that's what it means right here when it says the end of the age. What's it going to look like when the present evil age of Rome and beastly empires ruling over us, what's it look like when they finally go away and the new age of God's kingdom begins? When are you going to come into your kingdom, they're asking. And Jesus proceeds through all of Matthew 24, leading right into our parable today, to talk like one of Israel's prophets, to talk like Isaiah or Hosea or Jeremiah. He sounds like one of them. He talks in like this poetic, earth-shaking, earth-shattering kind of language about, verse 6, about wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, famines and earthquakes, the, the sun darkening, verse 29, and stars falling to the, to, the, to the land. And then Jesus says something. It's all like earth-shaking language. It's going to be like the end of the world. And then he says, verse 34, truly I tell you, this is really significant to understand what he's talking about. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Earth and Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So apparently, it's like Jesus is saying, in my humanity right now, I don't even know the exact like day or week that it's going to happen, but it's going to happen really soon, like really soon. Like, within this generation soon. How long, question, pop quiz, uh, how long is a generation in Jewish imagination in the Old Testament? Any guesses? 40 years! Bang on! Yes, exactly right. Yes. Gold stars for all of you. Um, yeah! That's how long a generation is in the Jewish imagination. It's a nice round number, 40 years. Within 40 years... Within the same generation as Jesus, Jesus says, the temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus came really close. He came really close. He, it actually uh, started about 36 years after Jesus spoke these words. Like the entire region gets like kind of out of control, beginning with some riots in the year 66. Um, the Judeans, the, the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, they got tired of God being in the waiting they got tired of waiting on what's God going to do, and so they took it into their own hands. They said, okay, we're tired of this, we're ready for the kingdom, and so they revolted against the Roman Caesar, Nero, not a great guy, and against the local Roman governor. They hated their tax rates. They, they did their equivalent of throwing tea into the harbor. They, uh, they hated being reigned over, being ruled over by these beastly, impure, unclean Gentiles. And they hated honoring Nero in any kind of way. And so riots broke out in the year 66. And you know how these things go. 
You know, you know how these things go with violence. The Romans killed some of their people, and then they killed some Romans, and then they took back Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and they ended up, there were some Syrian reinforcements from Rome that came in. They killed all of them. 6,000 guys they kill. It's an exciting time, actually, if you were like a Judean who was waiting on the kingdom, um, because it feels like the kingdom of God is arriving for them. They actually, uh, they actually printed some currency during this, uh, during this time. This is, uh, a, this is some um, Jewish currency. This actually says uh, Jerusalem right here on the side, and it says year three is what it says. This is the moment when they think the kingdom of God has finally arrived. We've gotten Rome out of here. We have conquered. We've kicked their butt. We've killed them. We showed no mercy to them. And look what we have to show for it. The kingdom is here. We got our own coins. It's actually a really big deal, like, to be carrying around something in your pocket that reflects, like, the kingdom of God instead of carrying around a picture of Caesar in your, in your pocket or in your purse. So the kingdom is here, but the kingdom only lasts like a couple of years. The riots broke out in 66, but then uh, in the year 68, they had to stop making these coins because um, the Judean rebel forces actually started killing each other. They started killing each other. They had different opinions. The governing, uh, pe- the, the governing and the zealots, the more radicals, they had different ideas of like what they should be doing and they started killing each other. Um, and you can't make coins while you're killing each other. And suddenly, this kingdom is starting to look more like a graveyard than a kingdom. One group of Judeans kills another group of Judeans. They show no mercy to the Romans or even to each other. And look what they have to show for it. I'm ruling a graveyard. It all came to a screeching halt in the year 70. Um, It's like almost bang on, 40 years after Jesus uh, spoke these words. For four months in the year 70, from April to August, the Roman general Titus, um, he garrisons 70,000. 70,000. We're talking Helm's Deep. We're talking Lord of the Rings battles here. 70,000 soldiers to surround Israel's great city, brimming actually with Passover guests. All kinds of people had come in for Passover and they surrounded the city and slowly, month by month, incrementally, area by area, city block by city block, they reclaim control of the city. And then on August 30th of the year 70, We know when it was. August 30th, the four-month siege of the city of Jerusalem finally ended when Titus's forces, um, they set fire to the temple and to most of the city. They slaughtered what remained of the rebels and they tore down the temple. Stone by giant stone, they are prying this marvel of the world apart. 
the young men, they were young men in the time of Jesus, and they had like turned violence on Jesus, and they became old men who were tired of waiting on God, and they had violence turn on them. Their dreams of the kingdom of God came crashing down, and it's sobering for all of us because those with no mercy are shown no mercy, is what happened in the year 70. And do you know where the early Christians were during all of this? They were embracing a different kind of kingdom. They had, for decades, been meditating on Jesus' words, warning about, Jesus said that Jerusalem was going to come to an end, that this thing was going to fall apart. For decades, they had had time to think about Jesus' life, refusing that Jesus had refused to take up violence. And maybe we should follow him and his example. For decades, they had been trying, you can throw that slide up. They had been trying to like reflect on what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount. He had said things like, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. They've been reflecting on all of this for decades. And they said, we're not going to measure out violence on anyone. (laughs) And they fled the city as this began unfolding. They refused to join in this violence. They weren't looking for a kingdom that came with violence. If it comes with violence, then it's not the kingdom, is what they said. They were trusting in a kingdom that was, had already begun arriving with love. That's the way it had begun. And they were seeking with all of their hearts to live in that love. They were seeking to give the mercy that they realized had already been given to them by God. And because they were filled up with mercy, God has had mercy on me in Jesus. They've had decades to reflect on this. Because they were filled up with love, mercy, the Old Testament word for it was hesed, hesed. It was mercy and love combined together. Um, They would not join this graveyard. Will not participate in this. That's the answer to the question of when. Jesus is talking about then. At that time, that's when the kingdom is going to be like two people getting separated. At that time. Within a generation, the kingdom of heaven is going to look like the separation. Can you see it now? The separation of two groups of people. Two groups of people who are interested in joining a wedding banquet. Who are groups of purity. Symbols of purity. They're both looking for the kingdom. But only one group has eleon. Only one group has Oil And Jesus is doing something like masterful here in this uh, parable because he's making a word play in this. The, uh, the word oil in Greek sounds remarkably like another word. 
Another word that Jesus talks a lot about in the gospel, especially in the gospel of Matthew, it's one that we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. Eleon sounds like eleos. Eleos. Oil sounds like mercy. Mercy. In fact, with all of its uses in the ancient world, oil, oil in the ancient world is your deodorant. It's your soap. It's your medicine. It's, it's a symbol of cleaning and comfort and, and medicinal purpose. Oil itself is like this symbol of mercy. And this parable seems like it's an embodiment of Jesus' statement there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the merciful will receive mercy. Those who are filled up with a leon will receive a leos. Those who are filled up with oil will receive mercy. The parable, it seems to be warning us um, that if we want a life, you can throw it up. If you want, um, that sounded like I was encouraging someone to puke, didn't it? You can throw it up. Uh, do it. Ipecac. Um, somebody knows what, somebody thought that was funny. If you want a life without mercy, be careful. You may get what you want. If you want a life without mercy, if you want to live in a world where you give no mercy, you need no mercy, no mercy at all, be careful what you want. You may get to live in that world, is what he said. In the year 70, at that time, Tote, it unfolded with a group of virgins, a group of pure people who very much wanted God's kingdom, finding themselves ruling over a graveyard. They lived with no mercy and they died with no mercy. Life without mercy is the great foolishness. Life without mercy is the great foolishness that we all live in. It leads one place, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the great merciful one, looking at us and saying, I don't recognize you. I don't know you. If you want a life without mercy, be careful. You may get what you want. If you care nothing about mercy, you will miss all the merriment. You will miss all the merriment because the reign of heaven looks like a mercy party. That's what the kingdom of heaven, that's what it looks like when heaven and earth are lining up. It looks like a mercy party. The kingdom comes through mercy, through grace, through forgiveness. It will never come by armies. It will never come by violence. It will never come by hurting people. It will not come by holding grudges. It will not come by you withholding forgiveness from them. The kingdom comes by healing people, Amen. by forgiving people, by gracing people, by mercy, by mercy. Ultimately, it came through the cross, is what Christians confess, through God himself showing that the heavens aren't holding sins against us. 
Heaven is not holding sin against earth. And he takes violence on himself rather than inflicting it on anybody. Instead of giving violence, the son says, Father, forgive them. The son gives mercy and the father gives it to us. Forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the gospel, by the way. God has mercy on you. He has mercy on me. And we've got to give it. If you want to live in the kingdom, we can't be the people of God without being the people of mercy. You can't do it. It's, it's completely opposite to the reign of heaven. You want to not give mercy? You're not going to like heaven. That's what heaven is like. It's a mercy party. We can't be the people of God without being the people of mercy. And so Jesus ends this parable by telling all of us. Verse 13, he says, keep watch. The word literally just means wake up. Wake up. And he knows that none of us are perfect. He knows that he has mercy on us. He knows that none of us are completely full of oil. None of us are completely merciful or entirely committed or or entirely awake. I mean, for for crying out loud, verse 5, both groups of people fall asleep in this parable. That's not what what, what has anything to do with it. It's like Jesus is saying, embody what you have received. And it's like Jesus is telling us right here, right now at the end of this parable, it's like he's saying, Every day that you wake up, strive to be awake. Every day that you wake up, strive to be awake. Awake to God's mercy for you, for this world. Awake to the fact that God is kind. Everything he does is kind. Everything he does is good. God, someone just needs to hear this this morning. God loves you. He he loves you forever and always. He has mercy. Embody that mercy. Embody it. The kindness, that chesed, that love. Embody it to other people. Live under the reign of heaven. You want to live under the reign of heaven? Have mercy on them. On them. On them. Pray for wisdom about maybe what it means and what it looks like in your life. But yes, even them. Even them. Trust God with all the justice of it. Trust God with the justice. Your job? Have mercy. Have mercy. Forgive them. Release them. Live free. <laughs> Live free. Don't, uh, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool living in the dark. Put the words of Jesus into practice. Put the life of Jesus into practice. Leave the graveyard. We're all invited to leave the graveyard and join the party. We wake up. Church, We wake up to the kingdom of God by embodying the mercy of God. That's the way we wake up to it. So the kingdom of heaven is like a mercy party. 
May that be a party that you're interested in going to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that you have mercy on us. May your life take root in us and set us free from all the graveyards that we live in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.